All right, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 5 through 9, <clears throat> at least for a little while. Um, if you are a guest with us, welcome again to uh, Providence. And that is something that I am very grateful to, to, to be able to say to everyone who's in the room, because it was so long I could not say welcome to this gathering of Providence Baptist Church. And so it is great to be able to say that weekly um, that we are beginning to be able to gather, even though it's broken up and though some of you are at home and we love you very much and we look forward to seeing you uh, sometime in the, in the future. Uh, but if you have a Bible, whether at home or in, in the room, make your way to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Again, at least for a little while. Uh, because if you uh, have been with us for the last several weeks, I mean, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. It's, it's on the cover of your bulletins. We've been doing that uh, for a while now. But the last couple of weeks, we've been in the midst of kind of a, a mini-series within Ephesians that's all focused on the Spirit-filled life. And so back in chapter 5, we talked about, uh, we understood from Scripture that we are called to walk in the Spirit and one of the ways that manifests itself is chapter 5, verse 21, by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so that was kind of like a, a big picture, you know, banner that goes across the next several passages of Scripture. And Paul then explains three practical outworkings of that. So one of them is how submission works in the midst of marriage. And then that's, that's chapter 5, 22 through 33. We talked about what that means and what that doesn't mean. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, an outworking of submission that is a different kind of submission uh, as it relates to parents and children. And then in chapters five, verses 5 through 9 that uh, Steve just read a few minutes ago, we have a, yet another outworking of submission, and that's as it relates uh, particularly to employers and employees. That stated... We're going to wait a week before we dive into what all that means, what it means to, you know, have a spirit-filled job, spirit-filled work, spirit-filled vocation, how employers should relate to employees, how employees should relate to employers. Because when you look at the word there in uh, chapter 6, in particular verse 5, bond servants, in Greek that word is doulos. And that word, just as readily, can be translated slaves as it can bondservants. In many of your translations outside of the ESV and maybe the NIV, I'm not, I'm not sure, will probably translate it slaves. And so, with, you know, and so if, if that's the case, then you would read verse 5 like this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to answer the question then, does the Bible condone slavery? Does the Bible condone slavery? Because 200 years ago, Southern preachers said it did. Our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, was formed to our forever shame because they said it did. And then many people today, anti-Christians, say the Bible condones slavery. And they use that as a means by which to try to undermine and discredit the Bible. 
And so they'll argue the Bible condones slavery. And so clearly we, we can't trust the Bible as truth. That, that, that's their claim. And the problem with this, though, is that no one is willing to do the hard work of looking across the totality of Scripture to see what the Bible actually says and does not say about slavery. And the reason I say, like, you know, that they come to this conclusion that, that God contains slavery, that's the conclusion they come to, I say conclusion on purpose because it is a fact that nowhere in Scripture will you find a universal and explicit condemnation of slavery. I am just being honest with the Bible. Is this what we want to do? You're not going to find it. You look at any page. You're not going to find an explicit and universal condemnation. But listen very, 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 very carefully then. The lack of a universal condemnation does not, therefore, imply some sort of tacit approval of slavery. Okay, it does not, therefore, imply some sort of tacit approval of slavery. And across the course of this morning, I'm going to show that to you. But again, people, by and large, who want to undermine the Bible, they do not do the hard work. They just rip something out of context, say, see, hear what they want to hear, see what they want to see, rip things out of context, and just say, see, the Bible, the Bible says slavery is a good thing. So clearly, we, we can't trust the Bible. It is just a <clears throat> relic of a bygone primitive era that has no bearing on our life today. And so just to give you a specific example, a lot of times people will go to, the way it works sometimes, they'll go to Exodus 22, they'll go to uh, Exodus 21 and 22, they'll go to Leviticus 22, which do have some pretty shocking things, being honest with you, but they will rip them out of context, they will rip them out of the narrative of Scripture, not seeing the beginning, not seeing the middle, not seeing the end, not understanding creation, fall, redemption, restoration, the grand story of the Bible, they will rip it out and say, boom, voila, see, God condones slavery, so clearly this is not a God to be worshipped. Clearly the Bible is something to be dismissed. It is discredited. And they won't look across the whole canon of, of, of Scripture. It would be like pulling out a little section from any book. We'll go with Harry Potter. You pull that out, and on a certain page in the middle with no context, no beginning, no end, you'd think Voldemort is amazing. But if you read the whole thing, you know clearly, like, no. Tom Riddle's not a good guy. And so it's horrible logic to come to any form of literature, and it's nowhere near intellectual, uh, intellectually honest to come to any form of literature and just rip something out and, say, and, and make it say what you want it to say, ignoring everything else. But that's what a lot of times people would do. And so to help us combat that understanding and be able to argue, no, the Bible does not condone slavery, we're going to chat about it this morning. And we're going to look at the, we're going to do the hard work of looking at the whole of the Bible and what the Bible actually says. And if we are even talking apples to apples as it relates to slavery. Because the reality is, we as Americans, when we read words like masters, <clears throat> when we read words like slaves, we, by default, and there's no, n- nothing wrong with this, it's just 
conditioned by our culture, we automatically read in what we understand of slavery in America, American slavery. That's the rubric by which we judge this. A slavery where predominantly Africans were brutally abducted in Africa, slammed into unimaginable quarters at the bottom of a ship for weeks on end, where many died and those who didn't were stripped naked and sold to the highest bidder on an auction block like cattle. And then forced to work in the cotton fields or the cane fields till the end of their life. And their children were forced to do the same. Often with barbaric brutality. Not always, but often. And so before I even begin to go any further, let me be clear on this. Though there is not a universal condemnation in Scripture as it relates to slavery, that form of chattel slavery is explicitly condemned in the Bible, both New Testament and Old Testament. Explicitly condemned. And I'm going to show you those texts as we make our way to them. Old Testament, New Testament clearly condemns chattel slavery as sin in the Bible, even though many sinful and perhaps blind, but still sinful people, particularly southern preachers and believers, said that it wasn't. They said it was fine. And they would use texts like this. Slaves, you need to obey me, your master, with fear and trembling, with a sincere, totally blaspheming and taking God's name in vain. But the first thing we just got to understand is when we come to these texts, we cannot read in our default. We cannot read in American slavery, something that culminated in the Civil War and then gave birth to Jim Crow, whose zombie is still walking around today. And so when we come to Ephesians 6, that's why I want to, like, pause. We always need to remind ourselves about historical context and not reading in our cultural moments. Recognizing the cultural moment that is going on today in our world, in the U.S., as it relates to racial division and, and racism. But to understand the Bible, we've got to recognize its historical context and not read into a situation that it was not addressing. It is not addressing American slavery. It is a completely different kind of slavery. So when Paul speaks about slavery and when Moses speaks about, uh, you know, and others speak about slavery in the Old Testament, they are not speaking about the horrid, depraved, evil wickedness that was colonial and antebellum slavery. They are not talking about that at all. They're speaking about slavery as was practiced in the ancient Near East and then in the New Testament as was practiced in the Roman Empire. And it was a slavery that was more dissimilar than similar to American slavery. It was more dissimilar than similar to American slavery. 
I mean, nobody in the modern world should be a slave, but American slavery was a historically unique thing. It was a historically unique and toxic and horrendous and wicked form of slavery. And so that means if we are going to be faithful to Scripture, we need to dissect these two and not confuse them. We need to demarcate them. We need to differentiate them and understand what one is and what the other is. Because we are not talking about apples and apples at all. American slavery and the current sex slave industry was and is 100% wickedness. Roman slavery was far more complex. But still, even within that complexity, Christianity laid the underpinnings for ripping out its foundation and the the eradication of all forms of slavery. To the point that, I mean, think about this. Everywhere Christianity has spread, ultimately, it may have been Christians who brought it, but ultimately, slavery has ended. Everywhere Christianity has spread, ultimately, slavery has ended. And so I want to make sure that we understand these differences so that we don't confuse what Paul is talking about in our text. And so when someone comes trying to undermine the Bible by saying the Bible condones slavery, you can say, actually, no, it doesn't. Here's why. And so to do that, I want to just lay out a couple of differences between American slavery and ancient Near East slavery. All right. And so difference number one. And different number, difference number one, American slavery was based upon race. That's not the case in the ancient Near East or Rome where anybody could be a slave. But in America, it was about race. You, in, in fact, America, in America, like America's slavery its very survival was dependent upon oppressive racism. This group of people is inferior to this group of people, completely based upon that. And so American slavery was completely built off of the sin of racism, whereas ancient slavery was based on personal economics and national war. Personal economics and national war which meant that anyone of any ethnicity could be a slave. And so 200 years ago, if you were in the U.S. South and you saw a black man, that person was a slave, period. If you go into Rome, there were no identifiers by which you could look at someone and say that person is a slave. You couldn't do it by ethnicity. You couldn't do it by wealth. You couldn't do it by um, what they are wearing. You couldn't do it by their education levels. There was no differentiator that you could visibly see to say that person is a slave or not. I mean, there are multiple stories. Like, remember your history about Greek slaves teaching Roman senators. Education. You look in, in the Bible even. Differences in how slavery worked. Joseph was a slave in Egypt, right? And he was second in command in Egypt, but still a slave. Or Daniel in Babylon, after he got through the lion's den for continuing to pray. He's a slave. 
but he's basically leading the country. He's second in command. That did not happen in the South. No one was vice president in the United States of America who was a slave. Completely different. Only few African slaves were educated. Some were, but very few. Most slave owners feared education. And no slaves in the South had wealth or land. But in the ancient Near East, that's not the case. Slaves were either already educated when they became slaves because it was a warfare thing, or their masters educated them as a good business investment. And so in the South, all slaves were poor. And over time, they began to identify themselves as an oppressed people akin to Israel under Egypt, with the United States representing Egypt. And there was a heavy hand upon them. They identified very much with the Exodus story. But again, that's not the case in the ancient Near East. Where you might have some guy who's living in like a governor's club mansion. And he has got a life of ease and things are great for him. But then his next door neighbor has an even bigger house, has more money, has more land, has... And that person's actually a slave. And so slavery in that time transcended all socioeconomic classes, all education levels, all ethnicities, and it wasn't based on any of that. So are, are you already starting to see how drastically have, it's not about race at all? You could not tell if someone was a slave or not walking around. In fact, in Rome, it was estimated at the time that Paul was writing the New Testament, 60 million Roman citizens were slaves. And what did these slaves do? They were the teachers. They were the doctors. They were the craftsmen. They were philosophers. They taught senators. It's not about a vision of being inferior. All they were was simply seen as unfortunate. And so American slavery by necessity is based on race and the sin of racism. Ancient slaves could be anyone, which brings us to the second major difference based upon race or not. The second major difference is like how you became a slave. Those are drastically different. In American slavery, you were either kidnapped from Africa or if slaves had children, they were automatically property of the slave owner. Again, simply treated like livestock. But in Rome and in the ancient Near East, slavery was based, again, on personal economics and national war, which meant, again, that anyone, anyone might be a slave. And so economically, sometimes people would actually sell themselves into slavery. That's what happened with Israel in the Old Testament with Egypt. They sold themselves so that they could survive the famine. And in the New Testament, you see this a lot. lot. People would sell themselves. They might sell themselves to pay off a debt. Not dissimilar from indentured servitude. So a lot of people came to, uh, this, to this continent, North America, through indentured servitude. Hey, I'll work for you for 10 years or something. Send me to the new land. Right? It, that's more similar. Indentured servitude's more similar to ancient slavery than is American slavery. 
And so people, the, the, um, you might sell yourself into slavery because the family patriarch got hurt, could not work. So a kid comes and says, hey, I'll work for you for the next seven years, for the next 15 years, if you will take care of my family. And so they would voluntarily sell themselves. Sometimes they would do it for a better life. I'll sell myself into slavery. That way I can be trained, I can be educated, and I can come out in seven, 15 years with marketable skills and get a job. Some people, sometimes people would do that. But obviously that did not happen in the inherently evil American slavery. It all began and was continuously furthered by abducting and capturing people from foreign lands and enslaving them. Taking a free man who might be a king, who might be a queen, who might be a princess in one land, taking them and abducting them and forcing them to go to a new world Right? Taking a child from a mom, screaming for their mom and dad and shoving them in a cargo hold. This is wickedness and evil. This is the same thing as the modern sex slave industry. Kidnapping people and forcing them into a life of slavery. And that brand of slavery is explicitly condemned in Scripture. And so in a letter written by Paul, closely related to Ephesians, written to his protege in ministry named Timothy, who was an elder at Ephesus. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Paul writes this. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he gives kind of a a list of who those people are. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so right there in that list, you have the word enslavers. A word that means to take someone captive and enslave them. All right? Sometimes in your translations, it's going to be kidnappers, but that misses the force of the word. The force, the thrust of the word is capturing someone and enslaving them. Explicitly condemned. And not just here, like you go to the Old Testament. I mean, Exodus 21, that I already told you, it's got some weird stuff in it already. Even it, verse 16, says, whoever steals a man and sells him. And anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And then think through Amos with me. Minor prophet Amos, chapter 1, verse 6. Thus says the Lord... For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. 
And so because they kidnapped and carried off people to sell as slaves in Edom, God used other nations then to to punish these countries and at times destroy them outright for their atrocities. But not only that, but actually if you'll read through Israel's history, you'll find that Israel became a haven for runaway slaves. And so like if you got out of Gaza, if you got out of Tyre and you could get into Israel, you were safe. I mean, over and over and over in Scripture, you see the command put on God's people to feed and to love and to embrace the alien and sojourner. And just look at what that's pointing to. Look at the foreshadowing this is throwing out there. See the redemptive seeds that this is pointing to. The idea, if you can make it into Israel, you're free. If you can make it into my people, you're free. It's a shadow of what's to come with Christ. The freedom that is found in Christ for all people, because the reality is we are all slaves. Slaves to sin. Slaves to ourselves. And God is the great abolitionist who sent Jesus to set us free, to bust the shackles that have us enslaved, to set anyone who will believe free from sin and from hell and from wrath and from yourself and from your wrongs and from your shame and from your guilt. If we come to Jesus, there's freedom. If you can make it to Jesus, you're safe. That's what the nation of Israel was foreshadowing. And the Bible is full of these kind of foreshadowings. That's, we saw tons of them in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings last year. Difference number three. In American slavery, it was for life. In ancient slavery, that wasn't usually the case. Okay? All these things, one of the things we have to rediscover as a culture, as Christians, as people, as Americans, is nuance. Okay? So American slavery, it was for life, unless you had someone who chose to set you free, which happened sometimes. But in ancient slavery, it wasn't usually for life. Like in Rome, thousands of slaves were freed every single year. Even in the Hebrew culture, there were lots of exit ramps to get people out of slavery and stay out of slavery to the point that even, like, a former owner who had a, he had a responsibility to assist his former slave to help get them on their feet and so that they wouldn't go just right back into slavery. And also in Hebrew culture, you had the year of Jubilee. And so there were just all kinds of provisions that served as kind of exit ramps to get people out of this when they become part of that, either by national war or personal economics. Exit ramps to get out. And so the differences are night and day between ancient slavery and American slavery. And so when we come to this text in Ephesians and we read Paul talking about slaves and masters, we cannot read into it our understanding and definition and background of slavery based upon our country's slavery. Because it's not talking about that. It's talking about something 2,000 years ago. A completely different kind of slavery. Something that's far more akin to indentured servitude than it is chattel slavery. I mean, just think about the complexity of this, how it would work in, in an ancient 
since it wasn't based on education or socioeconomic or race or anything, you may have someone who they have a, a, a master, and Monday through Friday they, they, they call him boss. It's like that's, that's their employer, they're, right? They're, they're, they submit to him. But then on Sunday, the slave, because of his education and background, is their pastor. And now the master submits to his own slave because he submits to his pastor. That's the complexity of what existed in Rome. So it is far, far, far more complex. And so Paul, in writing this letter to the Ephesians, though he does not outright reject the entire system, rather what he does is he writes a letter And he focuses in on believers who are living within a certain government system on how they are to live godly in the midst of that system. It would be like if I wrote a letter to Christians living in North Korea today. I'm not going to really comment to them on the totalitarian evil regime they live under. Yes, it is that. And yes, Ephesus was pagan. The whole Roman Empire was pagan. But rather, I'm going to write to those guys with a focus on, if, I, if I'm Paul writing in Ephesians, who you are in Christ, and then how you live that out daily. Now, it doesn't mean I agree with the totalitarian regime in North Korea, but it means that's not the point of my letter. The point of my letter is who you are in Christ and how you live that out. And it's the same thing with Paul here in Ephesians. He's not giving tacit approval of slavery. It's just that's not the point of his letter. But even without giving an outright rejection of slavery, Paul in all of his letters does found, like lays the framework for that rejection. Because remember when Paul wrote Ephesians. Where was he when he wrote it? Think, again, you've got to pull all these things together. Where, where was Paul when he wrote Ephesians? He was under house arrest in Rome. And while he was there, he wrote four letters. We call them the prison epistles. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon were grouped together and given to two guys to carry. Given to Tychicus and Onesimus. Given to them. And so they make their way and headed to Colossae, and they get to Ephesus first. They drop the letter off. It's read in the church. They visit for a little while. Then they keep going, and they go to Colossae to drop that letter off to the church at Colossae and to deliver that letter to a guy named Philemon. It was a personal letter to an individual. Who was Philemon? Philemon was the guy in whose house the church at Colossae met. Right? They didn't have buildings at that time. They met in people's houses. The kicker is this. Onesimus, one of the guys who's carrying those letters, and he's carrying one to Philemon, was a runaway slave who had come to Christ under Paul's ministry in Rome. And his owner that he had run away from was Philemon. 
And so when Paul sends him back to Philemon with these letters, one that's going to be read in the church and then one that's directly to Philemon, Paul does not expressly state to Philemon, hey, Philemon, you need to set free Onesimus who I've sent back to you. He doesn't say it that way. You can read it yourself. It's, It's less than one chapter long. It says this, hey, Philemon, I've not sent Onesimus back to you as a slave. I've sent him back to you as a brother. Treat him like you would me. How would Philemon treat Paul? Very good. Friends, how are we to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ? If you don't remember Ephesians chapter 4, with all humility, this is verse 2, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is that bond? It is not things outside of Scripture. It is not politics and culture. That bond is there is one body, And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is who is over all and through all and in all. So we're to consider one another's more important than ourselves. Friends, doing that and just living out Christianity ethics, kindergarten level, golden rule ends all slavery. It is the destruction of slavery. And so, in the end, the gospel of Jesus Christ destroys all forms of slavery. Because for one, we're all made in the image of God. Therefore, we all have intrinsic worth and value and dignity, right? Womb to tomb. Okay, the Bible's not just pro-baby. It's not just pro-birth. It's pro-life. The whole thing, the living of it. And secondly, for all who believe, if you believe, we're brothers and sisters. And even as it says in Colossians, one of the books that Onesimus carried, here, like in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so even without an explicit condemnation, like just proving this out, without an explicit condemnation of slavery, in the end, Paul rips the foundation out from underneath it. Because if you're thinking about your brother and treating him as a brother or sister, you're not going to own them. You're going to love them. You're going to love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Jesus gives an example of the Good Samaritan. And so even without an express condemnation, the Bible still ultimately crushes the idea of all forms of slavery. It explicitly condemns American chattel slavery. And it undermines all forms. But most people don't want to do the hard work or look at the Bible. They just want to rip something out, say, hear what they want to hear, and try to prove... Here's a proof text which even we as Christians need to be careful of proof-texting things and ripping them out of context. But even beyond the Bible, just historically, 
what has led to all the end of slavery? Christians have. So in England, you got Wilberforce, you got John Newton, right? John Newton, who was a slave trader, became a Christian, became a pastor, wrote a host of hymns, one of which is called Amazing Grace. It includes the line, Saved a wretch like me. John Newton put that in there on purpose. He's talking about himself as a racist, evil slave trader. These Christian brothers led the charge to end slavery. And then in the U.S., you've got the abolitionists, some of whom were crazy and did wrong things. We want to be honest with things and not just totally, you know, rewrite history. Let's be honest. So some of them were crazy and did bad things, but most of whom were spurred on by a commitment to the Word of God that in Christ there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no slave, there is no free. And so through pushing and working and fighting, ultimately this came to the end at great cost, including the Civil War. Horrific cost. But behind it all, the gospel was fueling and forming this fight. It was the gospel and the preaching of the gospel that led in the 1800s to the eradication of slavery. A hundred years later, it was the gospel and the preaching of the gospel that led to the end of segregation. I mean, Dr. King was a Baptist pastor. He had some wonky theology, absolutely. But he preached the gospel, and his arguments were formed on the basis of Scripture. And so it's Christians who have historically led this charge, and it's Christians who need to continue this charge. Because we're still fighting it, right? I mean, you can just sit here and name off names. Recently even, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd. This is still going on. And there's a gazillion. Everybody wants to get one reason. This one thing is why. Man, there's about a million layers, complexity. It's hard. But it's still going on. Protests, counter-protests, whispers behind curtains. It needs to be Christians who lead the charge to seek full reconciliation because only Christians have the answer. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that changed. We are sinful people by nature. It is only the Holy Spirit that can change our hearts. It is only Christ. And so just as we seek to with abortion, so we must push to see this ended as well. And in combating anything, you need nuance. Nuance. And we need charity. Charity. And we need love of neighbor to mark the way. And one of the quotes I try to keep in my mind a lot is from St. Augustine. You know, we don't consider him a saint, we just call him Augustine. But he says this, in essentials, unity. Where are our essentials? Clearly in Scripture. In non-essentials, liberty. We can disagree. In everything, charity. Charity. And this week I read a letter that dripped every ounce of this. It was written by Wigan Duncan, a chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, which is a PCA seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. 
And it was written in response to a request from the lieutenant governor of Mississippi asking him to comment on the debate surrounding the Mississippi state flag. And whether you ultimately agree with uh, Chancellor Duncan or disagree, listen to the nuance, listen to the grace, listen to the charity in this letter that he writes. I have lived and worked in Mississippi for more than half my life, but I was born into a family of eight generations of South Carolinians. My forebears fought for the Confederacy, and their descendants have been refighting the war ever since. I grew up reading Lee's Lieutenants, a framed print of Everett Julio's The Last Meeting of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson at Chancellorsville hung on my father's office wall. The women of my lineage were united daughters of the Confederacy, and my father was the chaplain for the 16th Regiment South Carolina Volunteers Camp 36 Sons of Confederate Veterans. I was reared on the lost cause, served as a U.S. Senate page under J. Strom Thurmond, Republican South Carolina, and I do not despise my ancestors. But I do love my neighbors, all of them. And I want all of us together to be able to be proud of our state flag. I fully understand and appreciate that many good people of this great state view the Confederate flag, the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia, merely as a symbol of heritage and not as a sign of support for slavery or white supremacy. For many, it represents rejection of political correctness, Reverence for ancestors, respect for the past, acknowledgement of our state's history, and other perfectly understandable and laudable things. However, as a historian, fully sympathetic to my people and our heritage, I have to say that the symbols of the Confederacy represent not simply the preservation of a way of life and states' rights, but states' rights to perpetuate chattel slavery by denying black people social and political equality. These things are explicitly in Mississippi's Ordinance of Secession. And then to make things worse, especially after most of the men who actually fought the war died, these symbols have been persistently and widely used to send a message of oppression, terror, inferiority, and exclusion to the black people of the South in general and our state in particular. This is sadly true of our current state flag, the so-called 1894 flag, which incorporates the Confederate battle flag. It was adopted in a time when efforts were being made to exclude black people from voting in our state and when lynchings were frequent. And it became symbolic of our state's opposition to equal civil rights for our fellow black citizens. So here's the situation. The Mississippi Code says that the Pledge of Allegiance to the Mississippi flag shall be taught in public schools of this state and asks our students to say, I salute the flag of Mississippi and the sovereign state for which it stands with pride in her history and achievements and with confidence in her future under the guidance of Almighty God. We are asking almost half the population of our state to salute a symbol that has undeniably been used for well over a century to indicate their own country's and state's rejection of their humanity and equality. That is utterly unconsciousable. What is the solution? 
the current state flag must come down and be replaced by a symbol that unites us all as friends and neighbors, fellow citizens who genuinely care about one another's well-being. As a Christian, this is all about two simple, basic biblical things. Loving my neighbor and acknowledging that every person is created in God's image. If we do that as Christian citizens, we will want our public symbols to emphatically acknowledge the humanity and equality of all our fellow citizens. And we will want those symbols to inspire them to feel a part of and love our state, not fear and distrust it. For some of our citizens, this will mean parting with symbols they love. But that too is part of the Christian life. Jesus taught us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Interestingly, this is the very subject that Douglas Southall Freeman addresses at the end of his Pulitzer Prize-winning four-volume biography of Robert E. Lee. Pausing to reflect on the character of General Lee and the principles which motivated him in life, Freeman writes... Had his life been epitomized in one sentence of the book he read so often, it would have been in the words, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And if one, only one, of all the myriad incidents of his stirring life had to be selected to typify his message as a man to the young Americans who mourned his passing, who would hesitate in selecting the following incident. It occurred in northern Virginia, probably on his last visit there. A young mother brought her baby to him to be blessed. He took the infant in his arms and looked at it and then at her and slowly said, teach him he must deny himself. That is all. Honored members of our legislature and state government, it is time to call the people of this state to deny themselves and love their neighbors. They will do it if we lead. Vote to take down the flag and replace it with a symbol that unites us all. And Mississippi can show the world what it looks like to love our neighbors and deny ourselves. Friends, much more than... the legislatures of Mississippi, or something that has to do with a flag. It is the job of the church to show the world what it looks like to love our neighbors and and to deny ourselves. In other words, it is our job to be spirit filled, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that is to be true in every sphere of life. And again, next week we'll pick up how that plays out in the marketplace as you go to work week in and week out. But this week we needed to chase this rabbit so that as we come to places in Scripture that speak of slavery, we do not wrongly read in what we know. We rightly read in what actually was true and happening. Does the Bible condone slavery? as we understand it in the United States of America? Emphatically, no. Let's pray. Father, help us, as we study your word, to be 
bound by your word. It is inerrant. Our interpretations aren't. You are perfect. You are truth without any mixture of error, as is your word. We aren't. Help us, Lord, to see clearly from your word what is true, and then to submit ourselves for it, to it, both when it is easy, which is easy, but especially when it's hard. Let Scripture be our final determiner on all things. And let it be the church's one foundation. Our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame or sweetest any, anything we could put there. But I wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let that be true. And let us be found faithful. Regardless of the cost. In the name of Christ, amen. Earlier in the message, I talked about the fact that Israel represents hope. If you can get to Israel, you're safe. And that is a harbinger, that is a foreshadowing. If you, if you come to Christ, you're safe. In Christ, there's freedom from slavery. In Christ, there's freedom from yourself. There's freedom from your shame. There's freedom from your guilt. There's freedom from your sin. There's the promise of eternal life, adoption into the family of God where you will be loved by Christ and you will be changed by Christ starting then and for the rest of your life till you go home to glory. If you've never trusted Christ, there is nothing I can more emphatically call you to. He loves you and he suffered and died for you. If you'd like to talk about it, come see me.